It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you as we are continuing in this series called Centered, in which we're looking at this very, very relevant uh, book of Colossians and seeing how it speaks into our very chaotic, busy, and fast-paced world. But I think it's only right that before we enter into God's word again together, we allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that on this rainy and stormy day, you have gathered us together as a family here now to learn from you. In the midst of our busy and hectic lives, you call us to once more hear your word because it's there that we find what it means to truly be centered. And so, Lord, we ask that you would indeed give us wisdom, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Several years ago, I read a book called A New Religious America by Harvard professor Diana Eck. And this book was a pretty uh, profound book. And in it, she talks a little bit about how our current American society has changed when it comes to religion. How we've actually become a much more religiously diverse country. And the argument that she makes there is that America is now the most religiously diverse nation on the face of the planet. Previously, it had been India. India was the place most people thought of when they thought of diversity and religion. But she said, but when you look at America, not only do you see countless world religions being practiced, but you see them being practiced in a variety of different ways. America is indeed the most religiously diverse nation on the face of the planet. And in many ways, this is a good thing. I love the fact that we actually live in a country where we have freedom of religion where people from all around the world can come together. And not only can they practice their religion in the way that they choose, but this is actually a country where we can talk about religion, where we can debate religion, where we can weigh different ideas and theologies and philosophies and discuss them and and examine them and compare them. Really sort out questions of truth together without anybody silencing any particular voice. There's a great gift and benefit to living in this country, this space where we have that kind of freedom. But religious pluralism does come with its challenges as well. Specifically, it presents a challenge to anyone who is indeed a genuine spiritual seeker. If you're a person who's looking to find truth, to find spiritual truth, to find religious truth, oftentimes our society can seem overwhelming. Because of the, ver- of the vast array of possibilities that stand before you. And the question is, so not only which path do I choose, but which path actually reveals the truth? Which path gives me the clearest understanding of the divine? Which path actually would point me to God? How do I know that among all these different options and books and television shows and Netflix series and, and religious communities and places of worship, how do I possibly pick and actually land on a path that is going to point me in the right direction. I'll be honest, this is the question that I wrestled with as I first kind of woke up and became open to the idea of religion. Was I, I, was, I was curious, I was finally open to the fact that there might be some sort of God out there, there might be some sort of divine reality, but, but where do I begin? How do I start? And for many Americans, I think we try to take the easy, uh, the easy road. We say things like, well, all religions are essentially the same, so just pick one. Just pick one, they're all equally good, or why pick one? You could pick several, 
Or you can take a couple of pieces of each one and, and take those teachings that most matter to you and, and most give you a sense of a foundation and purpose and direction in your life. But there's a couple of problems with this view. We talked about all this a little bit in the first week of the series, but I think one of the problems with this view is that, quite honestly, it's disrespectful to other world religions. Because what it does is it essentially takes the religions and turns them into nothing more than a spiritual mall. A place where we get to go and find those certain ideas that we personally like and consume them for our own benefit. In fact, uh, the um, renowned scholar of American religion, Stephen Prothero, in his book God is Not One, says that not only is it disrespectful, it's actually kind of dangerous. That when he is talking about this idea of all religions essentially being the same thing, he says it's a lovely sentiment, but it's dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. That when you consider the world's religions, you realize that they diverge sharply on doctrine, ritual, mythology, experience, and law. These differences may not matter to mystics or philosophers of religion, but they do matter to ordinary religious people. But religious differences don't just matter to religious practitioners. They actually have real effects in the real world. So what he says is each one of these world religions actually has a worldview that undergirds it that then plays out in our actions and in our choices. He says that ideas have consequences, that the deepest worship of our hearts ultimately is going to shape our character. It's going to shape what we do. It's going to shape how we behave in the world. And he says this is part of the reason why we actually have to be more religiously literate. We need to be able to really understand these worldviews on their own terms. To not do the selfish and the self-centered thing of just picking and choosing. But to really contend with them, to really wrestle with them, and, the, and, and really realize that these ideas not only have deep roots for those religious communities, but that these ideas will then play out in how we live in society today. So the other option is then to say, well, okay, then I need to really, really, really study all the world's religions. And I think that that actually is not a bad idea. I would love it if more people in America were religiously literate that you actually knew a little something about your religious neighbors, whether they're Muslims or Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or Baha'is. I think that is just good for living in a pluralistic culture. You should know a little something about what your neighbors believe. But the problem with this is that even if you got a well-rounded education in the world's religions, it still doesn't answer that deep fundamental question, which one is true? And how do I know? And why should I follow it? It can still be confusing and overwhelming, which is why I actually think that our text for this morning is so important, because it's in our passage for this morning that the Apostle Paul actually gives us a litmus test for evaluating all the various spiritual and philosophical options that we have in front of us. You see, Paul was writing to the first century uh, city, uh, to the church in the first century city of Colossae, and Colossae was a diverse city. It was a pluralistic city. It was a city where there were lots of different religions and lots of different philosophies. And so one of their leaders goes to Paul and says, so how do we, how do we choose? How can we actually respond and understand, is, is this spiritual practice or philosophy beneficial or not? How do we actually live out our faith when there seem to be so many other equally good and equally competing options? How do we hold fast to our center? And so Paul provides them with an answer. And I think this is important for us today because this answer actually helps us to be more spiritually discerning. I think that we as people in America, although we have all these options, we haven't really developed the discipline of becoming spiritually discerning. 
And I would argue that our text for this morning gives us a tool to help with that. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Colossians chapter 2 with me. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that is going to be on page 984. Page 984. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2. Because it's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, that Paul gives us this kind of litmus test, this way of becoming spiritually discerning and evaluating the different options that we have in front of us. Here's what he says. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Right here, Paul actually gives us not just one test, but three tests for evaluating different kinds of religions and faiths and spiritualities and philosophies. The very, very first test that he gives is he says, is this faith or philosophy or spirituality, is it man-made? Is it man-made? He says, you don't want to get taken captive by things that are really according to human tradition, that, that people have basically invented or made up. And I think that's, that's good because, first and foremost, I don't want to invest my time or my energy following something that's simply somebody else's opinion and has no actual roots in reality. Okay? That just kind of makes sense. But how do you evaluate whether or not a religion is man-made? How, how do you do that? I think it's an important question to really wrestle with. It was one that I had to wrestle with. And honestly, as I got into my college years and I started to pursue a degree in religious studies, what I found is that the vast majority of world's religions are actually based on a couple people's opinions. Let me explain what I mean by that. My focus was in Islamic studies, so let me start with Islam. Basically, at the core of Islam is this idea that Muhammad who is their central prophet, went up onto a mountainside to pray, and it was there that he had a, vision, a divine vision of an angel that appeared to him. And he comes down the mountain and he tells the people, I've had a vision from the one God, and you are called to repent and believe in him. But what's funny is what Muhammad's people say to him. They said, okay, so you had an experience with God. Prove it. Where is your evidence? Where's your evidence? And what's funny is Muhammad actually says, I don't have any other than this Quran." Other than this revelation, other than this word that I'm speaking to you. And over and over again, they said, well, that's nice that that's your word, but, but what evidence do you have? And they said, there's just, this, there's just this Quran. And Muslims today will say, yeah, the Quran is Muhammad's miracle. And the reason why we know it's divine is because it's so beautiful. The poetry is just so beautiful. It must have divine origin. And the truth is, is if you know a little something about Arabic and you've actually heard the Quran read, it is actually quite beautiful to listen to. That's a gorgeous rhyme scheme. But I will be honest. I don't think that that's really good enough evidence. To say, well, I've had an encounter with the divine. How do I know? Because I have poetry. Would be like me saying, well, I know a lot about Scottish history. And people say, well, how do you know? Well, I, I watched Shakespeare's play Macbeth. Okay, Macbeth is an awesome play. And it's got great poetry in it. It's one of my favorite plays, actually, but that doesn't mean I actually know anything about Scottish history. There may be some truths in there, but on the whole, we know that that's a play. And for Muhammad to say, I've had an encounter with the divine, and well, there, people are saying, well, how do we know? I think that's a fair question. If there is a God, the only way we're going to know if he actually exists is if he condescends in some way to reveal himself to us. And it needs to be in a way that, that everybody can grasp it. 
Because otherwise, on our own, I don't think we'll ever really figure out the divine. I don't think that human beings' brains are big enough to fully contain all the mysteries of the universe. It requires some kind of evidence. It requires some kind of proof. Likewise with the Buddha. It's like, well, he says, I've found enlightenment. I know the way to nirvana. People are like, how? He's just like, I, saw it. I sat under a tree and I really thought about it. It's like, that's nice. What evidence do you have that your path is true, though? That I can know that what you're saying is not just your opinion, but actually points me concretely and foundationally to the truths that underlie human existence and human experience. As I wrestled with that, I said, you know, there's got to be some evidence. Otherwise, it's simply made up by people. And the problem with man-made religion is that man-made religion ultimately ends up serving man. That the religions we invent ultimately are really for our benefit. We see this in verses 16 to 19. Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. He's saying, don't base it on human opinions because human opinions ultimately serve humans. And furthermore, he says, man-made religion is ultimately used by people to, de- to basically separate out us versus them. To talk about those who are in and those who are out. It becomes a basis by which we judge others and make ourselves feel better over and against those who just don't get it and aren't following the righteous path or the right way. Paul says, don't follow man-made religion. Don't follow visions that are not based on reason, that are just, puffed up, that are just somebody's puffed-up ideas about the divine. There's got to be something much more concrete than that. The second test that Paul gives is, is what lies behind this spirituality? You have to ask the question, what lies behind this spirituality? And again, we see this in verse 8. He says, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions or according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this is an interesting word in Greek. And depending on what uh, English translation you have of the New Testament, they all translate this phrase differently. The ESV says elemental spirits. Other translations say elemental principles. Other translations simply say elements. Others say foundational principles, and so on and so forth. And it's because Greek scholars have really wrestled to find a good term for us to understand this word. The word is stoichia, or stoichion in the Greek. And, and it can mean elements, like the four elements, you know, like earth, wind, and water, and fire. It, it, can, it can mean that, like the periodic table elements. But when it was used in philosophy, and when it was used in religious conversations and religious debates in the first century world, it actually meant something more foundational than that. It referred to those spiritual realities that undergird the physical world that we live in. Let me say that again. Refer to the spiritual realities that undergird the physical world that we live in. See, the Greeks and many ancient people and, and, uh, believed that there were spiritual realities that were at work and at play in our world today. 
And I think for many of us, we would do well as modern people not to dismiss that out of hand. Because the reality is, is there are many times when modern people denying religion and talking down about faith suddenly have what they would describe as a religious experience. They have a moment where suddenly the the divine actually seems real. Maybe they actually have a vision or someone speaks to them in a dream and all of a sudden they're flipping out. They're just like, that's amazing. There is a divine reality. But the question is, how do I know that I can trust what that spirit has just told me? Paul says you have to be ready and in a position to discern the spiritual realities that undergird everything. Why? Well, he gives us an answer a little bit later on in verse 23. He says that these spiritual realities sometimes have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says there are certain spiritual realities that you will encounter, but that doesn't mean that they're always from God. And it also doesn't mean that they're not always beneficial to you. He says that many of these elementary principles come across looking like wisdom. And you you should probably have your, like, radar going and your uh, antennae up when somebody comes to you and says, well, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to understand the deeper principles behind everything. That should be kind of a red flag initially. And then to ask the question, so how do I know that what you're telling me is actually something spiritual that is for my good? Because they aren't. Not always. Stephen Prothero in his book makes that case. He says, ideas have consequences. You need to understand this underlying spirituality. Does it actually lead to a place of freedom and life? Or does it actually lead to a place of condemnation and death? Because there are those spiritualities that on the surface look great until you start digging a little bit deeper and you realize that what's going on actually leads you down a road of despair. I saw this in stark terms when I took a trip to India earlier this year. As a part of our trip, we went to the Hindu holy city of Varanasi. Hindus actually believe that the god Shiva lives in that city. It is filled with shrines and temples to the god Shiva. And I remember as we were walking through the streets of that city, I noticed something on the side of the road. It was this long line of people. And we went around the corner and the line continued. And we went several blocks down and the line was still there. We walked blocks and blocks and blocks and there was this ongoing line of people. Now I've been to Six Flags Great America, ladies and gentlemen. And I've complained about those lines. They had nothing compared to this. And I eventually ended up grabbing, like, my tour guide, and, and he's not a Christian. And I just asked him, I said, what, what is that line for? And he said, oh, well, we recently unearthed a, an ancient temple to the god Shiva. And so the people are waiting in line to go and pray before the idol to Shiva because they believe that if they pray before the idol to Shiva, it will alleviate their karmic debt, it will wipe away their sin, and they'll be free from the cycle of rebirth. And I said, well, how long are people standing in this line? He's like, oh, they'll be there for days. I said, what happens when you get to the temple? He's like, well, it's really small, so you only get three seconds before you'll be pushed out. Oh, and by the way, uh, there's a required donation. I don't know if that's a contradiction in terms right there, a required donation. People standing in line for days because they are hungry to touch the spiritual only to arrive in this tiny room with a statue carved by human hands and kicked out in three seconds for money. 
That is a spiritual reality. That is a spiritual belief system that on the surface might sound good, but when you scratch the surface leads only to despair. And the reality is, is that Christians do it too. How many times have you heard some well-meaning Christian say, well, if you really want to know that you have a good relationship with God, that you really have the Holy Spirit working in your life, you need to be able to speak in tongues. I mean, that's an obvious sign that the Spirit is with you, and if you don't have that, I wonder about the seriousness of your faith. How many times have you heard Christians say, when they're coming to comfort someone who's dying of a serious disease, saying, well, if you prayed for healing, well, yes, I have. Well, if you're not healed, then maybe your faith isn't strong enough. Maybe you need to believe a little bit harder. Maybe there's some sin that you haven't quite confessed that you need to be willing to unearth and name. How many times have you heard Christians say, hey, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date girls who do? Yes, that's a joke. First and foremost, you know, that's going to ruin a lot of relationships for people. But the second thing is, is where does that even come from? Over and over again, even within the church, we buy into these spiritual teachings that really don't lead to life, that condemn people and make them feel like God doesn't love them, that they're not welcome in his presence, that they are dirty and unclean. And that's why these two tests are so important. Why Paul says, don't believe it if it's man-made and don't believe it if the spiritual reality underneath it leads you to death because both of those things will lead you back into slavery. Lead you into slavery and despair, feeling that, like, like God does not love you, that you are not precious in his sight, that you are not welcome in his company. He says, if they don't pass these two tests, they are not worth your time. They are not worth your consideration, however good they might look on the surface. Which is why we get to his third test. The one that I think actually matters the most. And that test is this, is it christ centered. Now, you may listen to that and be just like, wait, 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 that sounds a little biased. You're going straight to Jesus as a Christian? I mean, come on. I expect you to say that as a pastor, but hang on a second. Hear me out for just a moment. One of the things that I found as a spiritual seeker is that this test actually makes sense of the other two. First and foremost, what I love about Jesus is that when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a man-made religion. We're actually talking about somebody who lived in time and space and in history, who didn't just preach ideas, but performed miracles, who healed people and cast out demons, who raised the dead back to life. We're talking about a person who, although he was executed on a cross, rose again from the dead three days later and was seen by hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. And what I love about this is the fact that anybody can explore the history for themselves and see that it's true. I love this quote by H.G. Wells. He says this, he says, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Even hardened historians, people who don't initially start from a place of belief, have looked at the historical evidence for Jesus and walked away having faith because they were actually able to evaluate the presence of God in space, time, and in history. 
What I love about the Bible is that it's not just some story filled with some guy's opinions, but rather that this has stood the test of time and historical scrutiny. That the evidence is overwhelming and it's there for anybody to explore. And if you are sitting here this morning and you've never actually looked at that evidence, I want you to stop by the Connect Desk on your way out of here this morning. Because we have a book to give you that will introduce you to some of the evidence that will at least help you get started in examining it for yourself. The reason the Christ-centered test matters is because Jesus is the one religious figure who not only lived in history, but did far more than simply spout off opinions. He backed them up with miracles and signs and wonders. But more than that, he proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt by dying and rising again from the dead, and his tomb is empty. The evidence was so overwhelming that not even his first century enemies could deny that it was true. It's incredible. Christ-centered test matters because there's evidence for it. There's a couple other reasons why the Christ-centered test matters. Christ-centered test matters is because this is a spirituality that genuinely leads to life. Listen to what Paul says in verses 9 to 15. I just love this. He says, In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You, uh, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. See, what's beautiful is he's saying, look, God loves you. And he didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He didn't wait for you to get smart enough to pierce the mysteries of the universe. He came to you as a person to rescue you. Furthermore, his spirit dwells within you that if you have been baptized, you are now claimed as a forgiven child of God. He says that doesn't lead to condemnation. That leads to freedom. That anytime anybody would come and accuse you of not being good enough to deserve or earn God's love, you can say, I don't have to be because I am a forgiven child of God. It's part of the reason Paul can go on later and say, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regards to festivals and so on and so forth. Why? Because you've been set free. Jesus loves you. God dwells within you. And that is something that... You can never be separated from, neither height nor depth, nor rulers, nor powers, nor authority, neither things in heaven nor on earth can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's promise. Not just his promise, but that's Jesus' promise. That's what Christ tells us. That's what he came and gave us evidence for, so that we could believe that those words are true, and that God loves us. Furthermore, this allows us to actually live with compassion and selflessness in the world. I'll tell you, when this first came home to me was when I was a student at the University of Illinois. During uh, my years there, there was an event called the Interfaith Days of Youth Service. And the whole idea was that different religious communities on campus would get together for one day to serve the surrounding Champaign-Urbana community. 
And so we would go out to food pantries and to homeless shelters and to nursing homes, and we would do projects around the Champaign-Urbana community that benefited other people, that blessed our community. And then at the end of the day, we would get together and we'd have a discussion. We would talk about what is it in your faith tradition that inspires you to serve other people. It was actually pluralism at its best because it was an honest, robust discussion in which neighbors from different backgrounds were getting together and talking rather than shouting at each other via social media or Twitter. It was a really good conversation. But there came a moment in the discussion that I will never forget. There was a young man sitting next to me, and eventually he spoke up. He hadn't talked up to that point before. He spoke up and he said, hey, I just wanted you all to know that I'm, I'm actually not a person of faith. I'm an agnostic. And I love the fact that all you religious people have gotten together to serve your community. Because oftentimes when we see religions depicted on the news, they're always fighting each other and arguing. And it's really amazing to see you all coming together and having a discussion and doing something positive to serve our community. But I will be honest, as an agnostic, I still have a problem. I've been reading your religious texts. I've been looking at some of the passages that you've even printed off here, talking about why you serve other people. And they all say things like, you need to serve other people in order to be saved. Or you need to serve other people in order to become enlightened. Or it's only when you serve other people that God draws close to you. And as a non-religious person, that still sounds selfish to me. It still sounds like you're only serving people so that you can get stuff from God. And I would like to know what answer do you have for that? We have to imagine that was kind of like a bombshell moment for us in that circle. He just ruined our kumbaya moment. We were sitting there like, I mean, you should have seen like the discussion leader's head like spun around like three times. It's just like, what? And we were all sitting there in silence just kind of wrestling with that. And I remember here I am, this very young Christian who's just starting to wake up to the beauty of who Jesus is. And I remember having this moment where I kind of looked up and I opened my mouth and I said, well, I think, I think my religion's a little different. Because I believe that there's nothing that I can do to earn God's love. That he's so high and perfect and holy, there's no way that I could possibly earn it. But the amazing thing that my religion tells me is that I don't have to. That God loves me so much, he was willing to come into this world to serve me. To rescue me, to save me. And that I'm his child. And so I guess when I serve my neighbors, it's not so that I can earn my salvation or get any sort of benefit for myself. I do it really as a way of saying thank you to God for what he's already done for me in Jesus. And he kind of sat back and he nodded and he's like, I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's pretty cool. Can anybody else say that? He just ruined their kumbaya moment again. But not for me. Because that's the difference that Jesus makes. This is not man-made religion that we've practiced for selfish ends. This is a gift from God that God has given to us by coming and becoming one of us, walking with us, teaching us, healing us, dying for us, and rising again to new life. What's beautiful about Jesus is that he alone can deliver what all the other world's religions simply promise and can't possibly measure up to. He's the one who gives us evidence of God's presence and love. He's the one who achieves what we couldn't possibly hope to. And the one who ushers us into God's presence so that we can know that we are his forgiven children now and for all eternity. That's why the Christ-centered test is the best possible test for evaluating the various world's religions, for evaluating all these confusing spiritual options because it's in Christ that, as Paul says, the fullness of deity dwells.
bodily, that we can see him, know him, and walk with him. That we can truly be centered because we know who the center is. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed our Lord and Savior, that we say, Amen.